Well, church, this morning we conclude our study of the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to chapter 19, Judges 19 and find verse 1. Over the past 18 weeks, as we've walked through the many different stories contained in this great Old Testament book, we've identified our author's primary concern as communicating the greatness of God's salvation. As he, that's that's Yahweh, delivered his people over and over despite their continued failings and tendency to reject him, his, his will and his ways. God provided his people with saviors who rescued them from foreign oppressors and restored right worship practices. However, these deliverers, while these deliverers or these judges served God and his people, they were flawed. And the salvation they provided limited, revealing Israel's need of a savior who would be like them in every way but without sin. These judges each serve to direct God's people to see the significance of their need and the richness of His grace as one day He would send the Savior, Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled God's law on His people's behalf. He then died in their place on a cross, paying the penalty of death that their sin had incurred and then was buried in a tomb for three days, after which He rose victorious over death. So that now... Whoever confesses their sin and believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, that's the greatness of God's salvation and and our author's principal concern in this book. But we also noted a secondary theme. It's our author's warning against the dangers of spiritual assimilation or Canaanization, as we called it. As, As Israel settled in the promised land and failed to remove Canaan's original inhabitants in their entirety, little by little, Enemies became neighbors, and neighbors became friends, and eventually friends became family. And over time, Israel adopted the values and customs of Canaan. And so rather than standing firm and setting the example, they capitulated. They succumbed to sin's temptations, and slowly but surely, Israel's moral foundations eroded until, as we saw last week together, they arrived at a place where everyone did as he saw fit. Having rejected Yahweh as their king, the nation sank into the the morass of self-serving individualism. And this is where we find them wallowing as our text begins today in Judges chapter 19 and verse 1. And before we begin reading, I'd just like to make three observations to prepare us for what's to come. First of all, this text is progressive. This text is progressive, meaning as the story develops from its start in chapter 19 through to its conclusion in chapter 21, our author ensures that we as the readers see how sin spreads. It's like a metastasizing cancer. What begins with an individual concern comes to involve an entire tribe. And regarding the concern, what appears initially to be nothing more than a marital glitch ends up leading to tribal genocide. So the text is progressive. It's also impersonal. Impersonal. You'll quickly notice how unlike every other story to this point in Judges, the characters of chapter 19 and through 21, are, they're nameless. It's a fact that's led at least one commentator to observe, and, and rightly so in my opinion, that their anonymity expresses what is declared editorially in the refrain, in those days everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Meaning every individual is representative of an entire or the whole, the, the entire segment of society. So the Levite represents all Levites. The host 
every host, a woman, every woman. And further, by omitting all names, the author demonstrates the dehumanization that occurs, ironically, when society fixates on the individual. When all I care about is myself, and all you care about is yourself, when we each do what is right in our own eyes, we cease to care about anyone else. And, and as a consequence, people become nothing more than objects with no significance whatsoever beyond the fact that they serve my purposes, right? It's a fact that I believe has frightening implications for our postmodern, subjectivist, anti-authoritarian, hyper-individualized society. And so this text is progressive. It's impersonal. And then one further observation. This text has parallels. This text has parallels. And by parallels, I don't simply mean that there are other stories in the Scripture that share certain features like a, a main character who has a wife and a servant. I mean today's text closely resembles other biblical accounts grammatically, contextually, even thematically, which I believe res reveals the author's intent to capture sin's significance and its impact on Israel. And then I'll explain how and where the parallels are found at the appropriate time. Although, I would imagine that if you've read through this chapter in preparation for this morning, then you likely caught the clear allusions, didn't you? So with that said, let's begin reading from chapter 19 and verse 1. And just so you're ready, as you can tell, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So I'll be reading quickly, or at least more quickly than I usually do. So, Judges 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she'd been there for four months, her husband went to, went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with them three days eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the girl's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, refresh yourself. Wait till the afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man and his, with his concubine and servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, now, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that's Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. Let me pause there to establish the background to the offense, the background to the offense. The main character is once again a Levite, although unlike the one we encountered last week, chapter 17, who was from Bethlehem in Judah and ended up in Micah's rural Ephraimite territory because he was looking for a place to stay, this guy is actually from the Ephraimite hills and tied to Bethlehem by marriage. Only his marriage isn't a first-class affair, is it? Because this, this unnamed woman is only his concubine. And this is a word that we first encountered back in chapter 8 and verse 31 in reference to Gideon, where his concubine gave birth to who? Abimelech. And so, so this reference is one that should immediately create concern for us as readers. And rightly so, because we haven't even made it past verse 2 
before we're informed that she was unfaithful to him and she left him and went back to her father's house. Now, the exact nature of this woman's infidelity is hard to discern. Our NIV renders the original phrase as unfaithful, but this is somewhat misleading because a literal translation means to be angry or to reject. Further, our author doesn't explicitly blame either party for this separation. He only states that it happened. So exactly what led this Levite's concubine to head back to dad's is a mystery, but not a dark one. Not a dark one, because initially the Levite seems to hold out hope that his girl will return. Now, that's not the sentiment that you'd expect from a betrayed spouse. However, after four months and no sign of his lady, the Levite packs up and he heads to Bethlehem to persuade her to return. Whereupon arrival, we read that she took him into her father's house. And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. So clearly, the situation alluded to by that term unfaithful was minor. Otherwise, she wouldn't have met her man at the gate and walked him in to see dad. And dad certainly wouldn't have gladly welcomed him or come with joy to greet him as the ESV renders that statement. Whatever, whatever circumstance led to this couple's separation, I believe that it was minor. And our author very intentionally records this for reasons that will become clear in just a moment. He also captures the lavish hospitality of this girl's father. I mean... This guy hosts his daughter's husband like he's a king. I mean, it's almost comedic as he keeps convincing him to stay after he's gotten up early and packed to leave. I, I had to read this section several times just to try and figure out how many days it was that the Levites spent in Bethlehem because he kept intending to leave only to be dissuaded by his father-in-law's expressions of generosity. Now, we could speculate as to the reasons for this elaborate expression of hospitality, but I think such consideration would detract from our author's purpose, which I believe is to establish the social context for the subsequent events. In other words, this father's demonstration of hospitality wasn't excessive. Rather, this was the norm. This was the societal expectation for the treatment of strangers, and it serves as a background for the offense that will follow. Where in verse 11, we read that when they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone. The servant said to his master, come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on. And as the sun set, they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the field. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We're on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, your maidservant and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they'd washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we may have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. 
since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife, cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. Wow. This has got to be one of the darkest and most unsettling stories in all of Scripture. And the events recounted here reveal the despicable depths of human depravity. And, and by the nature and extent of the immorality portrayed ought to immediately draw parallels for us to the cities of where? Sodom and Gomorrah. And church, the parallels here aren't simply assumed based upon the subject matter, but they're shared, as I mentioned earlier, by the text itself. In fact, a comparison of Genesis 19 with Judges 19 reveals that 25%, 25% of the total words in these two chapters are identical, while a further 24 expressions found in Genesis find close counterparts in Judges. And these shared words and phrases convey, I believe, our author's desperate desire to demonstrate how that which once marked the two most perverse pagan cities on earth had now found expression in Israel. Because the source of these vile actions wasn't external to the human person, but rather was located in the human heart. And it reveals Benjamin's offense. And we noted the background to this offense. Here we have detailed the tribe of Benjamin's actual Offense, And I believe that this offense is twofold, with the first part linked with social practice. And so let me explain. In the ancient Middle East, up through the present, in fact, social custom demands hospitality be extended to the visitor or to the traveler. And we're not talking here about simply greeting an unfamiliar face and welcoming them to Salisbury. I mean, we're talking about inviting this person into your home, providing them with food, shelter, even protection from whatever enemies that they may face. This was a given for Israel in the days of Judges, as exemplified in our Levites' father-in-law's behavior. However, after the excesses, the excesses of the in-laws, our man encounters the very opposite, and not from the Jebusites. Even though the servant asks about stopping in Jerusalem, the Levite insists he won't tarry in a Gentile city where they can expect no welcome, choosing instead to make for Gibeah, a town belonging to the Benjamites. Only after arriving in the city and sitting in the square, we read the shocking statement no one took them into his home for the night. And church, I, I realize that the social outrage, this social outrage pales, pales in comparison to that which follows. But we can't make the mistake of categorizing sins and assuming that simply because we fail to respect our elders by 
the use of poor manners or we forget to fulfill a promise that's made to a friend that such behavior is acceptable in God's sight. How often have you compared yourself to someone else and employed a metric by, by which you've distinguished between, say, venial sins and mortal sins as if the former are less offensive to God than the latter? And as long as you don't kill anybody that doesn't really deserve it, or, or commit adultery with another man's wife unless she's already unhappy and she's going to leave him anyways. Or steal something that's in your possession, but it actually, while in your possession, belongs to somebody else already, like, say, Uncle Sam. As long as you, do, you don't do any of those things, you stay away from the bad boys, well, then you're pretty good. Friends, I fear that all too often we feel like we can justify ourselves and our actions through comparison. When the Scriptures make clear that we can't. All wrongdoing is sin, as revealed first by the social practice of the Benjamites, but then by their moral practices, or more accurately, their immoral practices. The perverse demands of these so-called wicked men of the city are, are simply nauseating. I mean, we struggle to read this story without feeling defiled, because it describes behavior that is rightly dismissed as abominable. Homosexuality, rape, Adultery and murder are, are heinous crimes and denounced unequivocally by the scriptures. Homosexuality is just one sexual expression of doing what is right in one's own eyes. Because when we consider God's purpose for sexual activity, the reason that he made it, we're reminded that it was given for two purposes. First, procreation, to fill the earth with God's glorious image, as in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God blessed Adam and Eve and he said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then the second reason is for the expression of intimacy and, and in marital commitment. That's described for us in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, where the two, husband and wife, the male and the female, are described as becoming what? One flesh, one flesh. In homosexual behavior, both of these God-determined and exalting ends are displaced, as they are in rape, as they are in incest and adultery, thus in the demands of these wicked Benjamites, I believe we see evidence of the extent of their assimilation. Just as one commentator notes, the echo of Genesis 19 in this text is intentional. By patterning this account after the earlier story, the narrator serves notice that whereas these travelers had thought they'd come home, finding safety within their own countrymen, they actually had arrived in Sodom. A nation to come full circle. Canaanization of Israel is complete. They've sunk to the level of the nations whom they were commanded to destroy and on whom the judgment of God hung. And church, I believe we live in a day where our nation's values vary little from those displayed in Gibeah. The practices of these wicked men, so-called, have infiltrated every sphere of life in our country, from politics to religion. The Supreme Court has sanctioned same-sex marriage, and entire denominations have endorsed its practice. Abortion kills countless innocents daily, while our public schools have become the breeding ground for the most gender-confused generation that's ever been. And in the midst of all this depravity, there sits the church, who I fear is often as the Levite in our story who callously threw his concubine to the wolves to save his own skin. Rather than standing for the truth by protecting the weak 
and the powerless, the Levite, God's selected religious leader, turned his bride over to Benjamin's degenerates. We often overlook the shortcomings of the Levite when set against the depravity of Gibeah's citizens. But church, we can't sit silently by while we have a voice. We can't passively participate in Benjamin's offenses. Now, this isn't a call for a social gospel, uh, as if social action you know, and a life lived in obedience to the gospel doesn't necessarily involve social engagement. On the contrary, Jesus' entire ministry reflected a concern for the least of these, the downtrodden, the poor, the sick, those without a voice, like the infant in its mother's womb, the sex slave or the refugee. All of these people need the hope, help, and healing that only the gospel brings. Benjamin's offenses revealed the depravity displayed when each person does what's right in his own eyes. And it led to Benjamin's destruction, where in chapter 20, verse 1, we read this. Then all the Israelites, from Dan to Beersheba, from the land of Gilead, came out as one man and assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. And at this point, our author provides us with the Levites' explanation as to all that happened. And while this isn't necessarily central to the point of the text, it bears mentioning that this guy's story is quite selective. And whether intentional or not, he leaves out the fact that that he's the reason that his concubine was killed, choosing instead to focus on the threat made against his life, concluding that they raped my concubine and she died. Now, I find it odd, but consistent with his character as revealed by his actions while in Gibeah, that the Levite tells this story in a way that depicts himself as an innocent victim. Now, regardless of his motivation, the result of his testimony, coupled with the brutal manner in which he calls this assembly a second passage paralleling a further scriptural act which is given us in second or first Samuel 11 where Samuel followed a very similar pattern but the result here is a unanimous denunciation of Gibeah and and in verse 8 the entire nation pledges that none of us will go home no not one of us will return to his house until the city's wicked men are put to death and then from verse 12 through to the end of this chapter our author recounts the three violent altercations that ensued as Israel sought justice for the murdered woman. Surprisingly, Benjamin chooses family over faith, clan over the courts, and invites Israel, just try, try to serve sentence on Gibeah, which they do with the devastating loss of some 40,000 soldiers over two battles. And after each, the people turn to the Lord for direction, and after each, they're directed to head back out, where prior to the third battle, the Lord, Lord assures Israel of victory, saying, I will give them into your hands. And sure enough, on the following day, the Benjamites arrogantly advance against Israel, but they're caught off guard by an ambush that successfully breaches the city and slaughters its inhabitants before setting it alight. And the rest of Benjamin's army, now trapped, become easy pickings for Israel's warriors, with the resulting massacre leaving only 600 alive who managed to flee, we're told, to the Rock of Rimmon. So complete is God's judgment on Benjamin that by the end of chapter 20, the 600 warriors who'd escaped are the only Benjamites left. As the 
rest of Israel returned from the battle and put all the Benjamite towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. As shocked as we may have been at the end of chapter 19, by the time we get to the end of chapter 20, we're positively numb as the depravity of Gibeah's men has now been matched by the brutality of Israel's victory. Now, this is one of those moments where, as a reader, I found myself desperately looking for a silver lining, scanning the wreckage of these two chapters for a sign of hope and of healing after days of violence, death, and destruction, something, anything to hold on to. Because in these two chapters... Our author brings us face to face with the ugliness of sin and the severity of God's just wrath. For in Gibeah's wickedness, as we've noted, we see the depravity of the human heart. When we do what we see fit, it's only a matter of time before we evidence the vile behaviors that mark Benjamin. It's only a matter of time before society descends into complete anarchy and chaos. And in this state of total depravity, we are wholly discontent, incapable of finding peace or purpose. And we face the just wrath of the holy God whose law we've rejected, the king we've usurped that we might do what we see fit. And facing this king's judgment means facing the death sentence, for that's the punishment merited by our mutinous actions. And the harsh reality of life, is that we're all born into this condition. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to change that. Left to our own devices, life would end with the justice meted out at the conclusion of chapter 20. But the beautiful story of the Bible doesn't end there, does it? And neither does Judges, as chapter 21 tells us the story of Benjamin's hope. Benjamin's hope. Now, we could read this entire chapter. I'm not going to for the sake of time. However, I hope that if you haven't already, that you'll make time later today to read all of the verses that we've covered this morning, beginning with chapter 19, so that you can get a feel for the very real danger that sin poses and its horrifying effects on society. Depravity, friends, isn't something to laugh at, despite the trite approach often taken by television when discussing such things. Sin, like cancer, kills. And if we're, we were left to ourselves, we'd be doomed. But, but, God, who is rich in mercy, has made a way. Chapter 21 details the unique provision that Israel makes for Benjamin in order to preserve the tribe. And while the manner in which this saving grace comes about raises many questions and is marred by the further slaughter of an entire city, nonetheless, we are led to see God's grace as at least a remnant, a remnant of Benjamin survives. Whereas before, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed in their entirety. Benjamin's survival demonstrates how because of Yahweh's mercies, we are not consumed. And that even in his wrath, he remembers mercy. It says, one theologian concluded, there is no other explanation for this miracle 
than that God, in His grace in the Christ, wished to dwell in the midst of that people Israel in spite of its sin. And church, as we close, are we not amazed that at the, as the book of Judges ends, that there even is an Israel? For as we've seen over and over, these people were wicked. They failed from the first to live up to God's commands, and they never once merited all that he did, yet he continued to shower his grace upon them, sending them deliverer after deliverer, providing for their needs and fulfilling his promises. Friends, it can only be because God's grace is greater than all our sin that we, like Israel, have life today and hope for tomorrow. This is the greatness of God's salvation. And it needs to be great because our need is great. Have you experienced this great grace? Or are you stuck in chapter 19, facing chapter 20, where all that you know is the darkness of depravity and the certainty of divine justice? Confess your sins and believe in Jesus because he alone can save you. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are good. Life is hard. Father, despite momentary distraction in which a season in which we find ourselves may seem satisfying, in the end, reality sets in. And that niggling discontentment that we've managed to hide, buried beneath mounds of distraction, surfaces. Father, and in that moment, we come face to face with the futility of life lived for our own ends. Where we each do what we see fit. God, if this is the end that we have in mind, then we are without hope. And we find ourselves in this story, in chapter 20, facing destruction. But Father, we praise you that that is not how you have left us. You are a God of grace. And that you provide hope a hope that came at the cost of your son's life. The highest cost that you paid for us so that we don't have to die. Lord, we, we cannot comprehend this. Lord, an articulate argumentation cannot convince anyone. For only you can raise the dead. Only your spirit can bring life. And God, we hear your gospel, we sing your gospel, we pray your gospel, and we who have experienced your gospel go ever deeper in love with you for what you've done. Father, for those that have yet to experience that, Father, for those in whom the depravity of which we've read still resides as their only option. God, would you show grace? 
and safe for your glory. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who've heard your gospel, who know of this hope and may have desired it, but have yet been hesitant to stand before others and declare it to be their own. Lord, maybe this is that day. Father, thank you that there is a but after chapter 20 and that we, your church, live in the reality of chapter 21. Lord, would you allow us to proclaim this hope? May our lives reflect this hope. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.